This story includes discussion of suicide and other self-harming behavior and might not be appropriate for younger listeners. I was in seventh grade when a boy in my class, Alex Grace, was diagnosed with brain cancer. I heard news whispered by teachers in the hallways. He was going to be having surgery soon. He'd be staying in the hospital for a while recovering. That year, Alex was in and out of the hospital, fitting in ballet performances and class when he could. His hair fell out from chemotherapy until he was completely bald, and you could see a big scar running up the back of his head. I remember him still smiling a lot, his small features looking perfect and exposed. A year later, he was gone. A couple of years ago, a 14-year-old boy named Finn, who went to the same middle school as me, won the Alex Grace Award for kindness, integrity, courage, and wisdom. We look forward to seeing what this young man can show us in high school. Congratulations to... Finn Winterson. I'm here today to sincerely thank the faculty and staff of our amazing, diverse school. Like Alex, Finn died young. Finn was transgender, and in the year leading up to his death, he'd socially transitioned from a girl to a boy. By all accounts, Finn received a lot of support in the community and had thrived at school. But just days after he graduated eighth grade, Finn walked out in front of a train and ended his life. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. I'm Donna Cleveland, a journalist and cisgender woman who's trying to understand how gender influences our sense of self. Finn's death was a huge loss in my town, a small community of 10,000 people in rural Iowa. Unfortunately, Finn's story fits into a larger trend. There are 1.4 million transgender and gender nonconforming adults living in the U.S., according to the latest government data. A staggering 41% have reported attempting suicide at least once in their lifetime, according to research conducted by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the Williams Institute. That's far higher than the national average of 4.6%. In this episode, we'll try to answer the question, what does our society need to understand about gender and how it influences our sense of identity in order to better support this vulnerable population? We'll follow the life of Finn, who inspired this episode, and we'll gain insights from the author of a children's book on gender identity, Teresa Thorne, and transgender activist, Tamlin Day. Finn's death started a lot of conversations in my town and highlighted how little many of us know about gender identities that fall outside of the familiar two options of girl and boy. In this episode, as we work our way through Finn's story, I'll share the answers I found to the most commonly asked questions I've come across. One, is gender something that's taught, or is it an inherent part of our identity? Two, can gender dysphoria be a phase? Three, at what age should parents teach their kids what transgender and non-binary mean? Four, when is the right time to consider putting kids on hormones, treatments that can have irreversible effects? And five, why is the suicide rate so high for people who are transgender? The first person I spoke to was Finn's mom, Heidi Wynn. As we sat down in her living room, Heidi began to tell me about how she came to live in Fairfield. 
In 2008, she packed up her minivan and her two kids and drove from Portland, Maine, all the way to Fairfield. Her brother had convinced her to move to Fairfield to put her kids in Maharishi School, the same school I'd gone to, where kids meditate twice a day using a technique taught by Maharishi, an Indian guru who the Beatles used to follow. Side note, there's a lot more I could tell you about Fairfield, but I'll save that for another episode. Heidi appreciated the simple life she found in Fairfield, and it seemed like her kids did too. She found work in the mental health field, and she began seeing a man named Jean, who she went on to marry in 2012. Then, in 2015, things began to change for her youngest child, who would later identify as Finn. He was in sixth grade at the time and had recently turned 12. He came into Heidi's room one night to cuddle with her before bed, something he did often. This particular night, my hand felt his wrist for some reason under his sweatshirt, and I felt scarring. And I went up further on his arm and I went all the way up to his elbow. And I turned on the light, and Finn had been cutting. Although Heidi had seen this type of self-harming behavior as a therapist, she hadn't suspected it was happening right under her nose. How could I not be knowing this? As a mother, where's my intuition? I didn't know it, but Finn was having a lot of anxiety and a lot of suffering. Over the course of the next year, Finn would be in and out of the hospital for suicide attempts. When he made his first attempt in October, Heidi pulled him out of school. She tried putting him on antidepressants, including Prozac and Lexapro, and even consulted a psychic, but nothing seemed to help. On New Year's Eve, Heidi said Finn took muscle relaxers she'd had in the house from an old tennis injury. Then in February, he ended up in the ICU after taking 50 Benadryl. This kid was trying to die over and over, and I didn't want him to die. In, in between hospital times, he would curl up to me and he'd say, I feel like I'm on a mission to die. And I would say, how can you say that? I, I, I couldn't live without it. I would just be like, on a mission to die. Your 12-year-old is on a mission to die. I, I like, where did this come from? And I, I was at a loss. In May, Finn was back in the hospital, a year after Heidi had first discovered Finn had been cutting. One day, Finn called her from the hospital with an announcement. He said, I had a moment of clarity last night. I'm a boy inside, and I want to be called Finn. I asked Heidi if she was surprised by the news. In hindsight, she said there were a few small signs, like the fact that he liked to wear boxers when he was seven and wanted a short haircut above his ears. But for the most part, she didn't see it coming. It was a surprise, although I didn't let myself stop to feel the surprise because I was all about validating this kid and helping this kid, whatever he was going through, to have whatever support he needed. But why the sudden lightning bolt? It turns out, months before that in the hospital, Finn had shared a room one night with a transgender boy who went by Hector. They stayed up all night talking. That was Finn's first time ever really knowing about transgender. He didn't know it until he knew it, and he didn't know that it was possible. That like, Sort of like he didn't know he had the right to claim that until he did. Heidi didn't know much about being transgender at the time, but she was quick to get on board. He could have called me up and said, I'm a pineapple, and I would have said, welcome, whatever you are. I mean, I, it was life or death. The next day, we went up. We ordered on my phone some boy, teenage boy clothes. And then when they came in, I brought them up. And within a couple of weeks, one of my best friends went up there. We had to get special permission. She had scissors and cut his hair into a savvy kind of long bang, short all over side haircut. And he, he loved it. 
Coming out seemed to provide Finn some relief from his inner turmoil. In U of I hospital, and probably every hospital, they have these purple assessment cards that go from zero to seven, and they're suicide assessments. Are you having thoughts about suicide? Do you have a plan? Do you have intention? Do you have a means? All this. And they do this assessment on the kids in there three times a day. And for the whole time that Finn was in the hospital there, he was at a six or seven every single time, three times a day. Until the day he came out as a boy, it went to zero and it stayed at zero. At this point in Finn's story, the questions I set out to answer at the beginning of this episode were beginning to resurface. Finn's mental health at the time made the need to socially transition Finn urgent. But for other parents, I wondered how much time seemed appropriate to wait before going forward with a gender transition. I realized this question was just another way of asking the common question I'd heard. Can gender dysphoria be a phase? I also wondered if Finn had never met Hector, would questioning his gender have ever come up? This ties into question two. Is gender something that's taught or is it an inherent part of our identity? And finally, when is the right time for parents and teachers to explain to kids what transgender and non-binary mean? I'm going to pause Finn's story here to explore these questions. On the West Coast, around the same time Heidi discovered Finn had been cutting, across the country, a four-year-old child was beginning to explore their gender identity. Teresa and Jesse Thorne, who are both professional podcasters living in the San Francisco Bay Area, thought that the oldest of their three kids was a boy at the time. Their child would ask, Why do girls have vaginas and boys have penises? And I said, well, some boys have vaginas and some girls have penises. And then she said, well, I'm a girl with a penis. It took them a while to catch on. They were aware of and open to the possibility of different gender identities. But still, it didn't occur to them that their child, who would later become Grace, was trans. At no point did I think I had a trans kid. I think just nobody expects that to be their child because that's not the way our culture is. As months passed, it began to become clear. She would ask me, Mommy, can I grow my hair out long? Or I want barrettes like that. Or she always wanted things that were pink. Or um, she just really liked to express herself in a way that in our culture, we would think of as being typically a girl style of expression. By the time she was five, this conversation around gender increased a lot to the point where she basically just told me that she thinks she's a girl. Around this time, Teresa and her husband began having more serious conversations about the potential of socially transitioning Grace from a boy to a girl. They found themselves wrestling with a lot of the same questions I'd been having. Firstly, could this be a phase? Before exploring this, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this is a loaded question. Parents have been known to ask this question when their kid comes out as gay, and this shows not only a lack of support, but of understanding of how sexual orientation works. And while gender identity and sexual orientation aren't the same thing, they're both part of who a person is, and they both have been and continue to be stigmatized instead of celebrated as part of a diverse society. So because sexual orientation and gender identity are both important parts of who a person is, asking if it could be a phase can be pretty insulting. However, Unlike with sexual orientation, affirming gender identity once a child reaches puberty involves making medical decisions that have lasting effects. 
Here, we'll take a moment to try to understand how gender dysphoria works in kids, according to the available research. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, gender identity emerges between the age of two and four. By the time a child is five years old, they'll likely express a clear gender identity. At that age, a child may begin expressing gender dysphoria, a sense that their body and assigned gender doesn't match how they feel inside. There have been a few studies that have followed patients experiencing gender dysphoria from early childhood into adulthood to see what happened over time. The studies concluded that the majority of these kids didn't mature into transgender adults. Some people look at these studies as evidence that children simply can't know their gender identity at such a young age. But there's strong reason to believe that's a misguided conclusion. Researchers from an organization called the Trans Youth Project have pointed out that there are some problems with the way these studies were conducted. They say there's evidence that most of the children in these studies weren't actually trans to begin with, and that people's lack of understanding at the time of how gender works is likely to blame. In a 1995 study, they found that when children were asked in an intake questionnaire whether they were a boy or a girl, 90% answered with their sex assigned at birth. Only 10% of kids in the study reported being a gender that didn't match their sex assigned at birth. As the Trans Youth Project pointed out, there's a difference between wishing you were a girl and actually feeling that you're a girl. So it's entirely possible that only 10% of kids in this study were actually trans to begin with. A 2008 study supports this conclusion. This study found that the stronger the gender dysphoria kids experienced at a young age, the more likely they were to be transgender adults. According to the Trans Youth Project, it's safest to say that it's unknown at this time whether gender dysphoria in children can be a phase. At around the age of 10, however, as kids get closer to hitting puberty, research shows very conclusively that gender dysphoria is extremely unlikely to be a phase. In fact, a 2010 study of 70 adolescents who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria and put on puberty blockers found that all 70 of the kids continued with actual sex reassignment, beginning with hormone therapy. So what should parents do with this information? Studies have found that children who experience rejection or disapproval from the people close to them are at high risk of a whole battery of negative life outcomes from self-harm to suicide. In light of these studies, it becomes more evident why even asking if a child's gender dysphoria is a phase can be dangerous. This is especially true when you consider the relatively low risk of affirming young kids' gender identity. Any transition would simply be a social one. You'd be supporting the child in changing pronouns, hairstyles, clothes, and a first name in everyday life. An increasing number of hospitals and clinics nationwide are using the gender affirmative model to treat children and adolescents with gender dysphoria. If a child is consistently expressing gender dysphoria, the model calls to take measures to alleviate the dysphoria step-by-step until a comfortable expression has been found. The model centers around a few tenets, including the idea that gender variations are not disorders and that gender may be fluid and is not binary. The model holds that any pathology seen in the trans community is most often due to discrimination and is not inherent to this population. WPATH, the medical protocol that's basically the Bible of transgender healthcare, says the most important thing is for parents to make their kids feel safe in exploring their feelings about gender. 
if a child socially transitions, they also caution parents to make sure to let their child know it's okay if their gender identity changes in the future too. For adolescents considering hormone therapy or surgery, WPATH calls for extensive psychological evaluation first. Grace began her social transition at the age of five. I guess our fear was, oh, if we allow her to be a girl, then we're like encouraging her to be trans. And what we came to understand just purely by educating ourselves was that kids' families can't make them a gender other than what their gender is. Gender identity is very innate and it's a part of who that person is. And parents can't make a kid trans. They can't make a kid be another gender than the gender that they are. We can only just accept them and support them. Teresa pointed out that as awareness and acceptance of gender diversity increases, socially transitioning a young child shouldn't be a binding decision. Grace says she's a girl, so from my perspective, she is a girl. But if she were to ever say, you know, I'm actually non-binary or I'm actually, I mean, there's so many different ways she may choose to describe herself in her life growing up. That is okay too. And that doesn't make now any less real. Like she is who she is now. And that's beautiful. It's been two and a half years now that their daughter Grace has been living as a girl. They said they knew they were on the right track when they saw her distress dissolve away. She loved it. She was so happy. I mean, it was like turning on a light, you know, it was just easy. She never wanted to get dressed in the morning. And she didn't ever say, like, I hate this stuff because it's boy stuff. Uh, And she said that later once she had a whole closet full of girls' clothes, too. But she just hated getting dressed in the morning. It was just a pain in the butt to get her dressed every day. It was really hard. And once she had clothes that she liked and felt good in, she got herself dressed. We didn't have to help her get dressed. We didn't have to encourage her to get dressed. She was just dressed. She was ready. There was one particular night that stands out in my mind where we were going to a friend's wedding reception and my daughter wanted to wear a dress like me, but the only dresses that she had in her closet were like play dresses. We would have been fine with her wearing a dress to that, but we didn't have the right thing. And so we had to explain to her like, look, this is not appropriate. This My Little Pony dress that you have that you love, it's kind of trashed for one thing. And secondly, it's just not appropriate. So she had to wear like a dressy boy's shirt and pants and she was really upset and there was like a tantrum and we finally got her on board for going by. I let her, I picked out a necklace of mine that she got to wear and we put a bow in her hair. We like tucked her bangs. She had a very traditional boy's haircut at the time, but we tucked her bangs back into a barrette and she wore that to the wedding and she was happy. I remember so clearly that my husband was like, oh, you look really cool. And she was like, I don't want to look cool. I want to look pretty. When we can express who we are, things tend to go easily. But when we're kind of like forced to express something that is not true for ourselves, things come to a screeching halt. Teresa learned a lot through Grace's transition. She decided to write a children's book called It Feels Good to Be Yourself, designed for kids ages 4 through 8. While many books focus on one kid who's different from other children, she instead created a narrative following a variety of kids who express their gender in different ways. One thing I heard a lot was people saying, 
Well, I just think they're too young to know right now. I think it just genuinely comes from a place of not understanding that gender identity is different from sexual orientation. Because as a culture, we're still learning, a lot of people still connect in their mind gender with sexuality. And so it freaks people out when they think about little kids having an open mind about their gender and their gender identity, because somehow in their minds, it's wrapped up in sexuality, when in reality, we know that it's not. So far, Teresa said Grace is living a happy and fulfilled life as a girl. Her friends and parents have embraced her new identity, and she seems more at ease with herself than before. While Grace discovered her gender identity at five, and Finn at 13, transgender activist Tamlin Day, who is also my coworker and friend, didn't come out as transgender until his 30s. Tamlin grew up in the 80s in a conservative Christian family in a small town in New York. I knew what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to wear dresses and play with dolls and go to book clubs with other girls and sit in the girls' Sunday school classroom, things like that. He said he'd never heard of transgender, let alone met anyone openly transgender, until he was well into his 20s. Like Finn, Tamlin made several suicide attempts as a teenager. I think that a lot of the stories that people like from transgender people are the ones where either you always knew or you have this sudden epiphany. And for me, it just didn't work that way. I always knew that I didn't fit in. And sure, everybody feels that way to a certain extent. And I always felt like there was something wrong with me. That was really what it came down to. I felt like I was fundamentally broken in some way that I couldn't identify and that I was doomed. I didn't know how I was doomed. I just was sure that I was. I didn't have the language to tell anyone what was wrong. Like I didn't even have a way to conceptualize for myself what was wrong. It left me feeling very broken and like it was a different species from other people. Talking to Tamlin, I realized that perhaps I'd set up a false dichotomy when I'd been asking if gender was either innate or a social construct. Perhaps it was a complicated web of both. Everybody has some block of traits of who they are naturally, who they would be regardless of interference, and who, in spite of that interference, still hold on to those traits. Maybe you were stubborn, or you really liked the color blue, and then maybe later you met other people who also really liked the color blue, and that sort of confirmed for you that it was okay to like the color blue. And so I think that those social interactions are a form of confirmation of identity. And if you don't have those social interactions, you can't confirm an identity that you haven't been able to form because you haven't been around other people who served as role models. While gender may be innate, I was beginning to appreciate the importance of seeing positive examples represented in society. Our gender identity is there and how we express our gender forms out of how we're socialized. I think one of the reasons I didn't realize I was transgender was because I'd never met a non-binary person. I knew men and I knew women, and to my knowledge, didn't know anybody who was non-binary. Who knows, maybe I did, and they were just like me, confused and lost and terrified. Because Tamlin had more of a gradual awakening to his gender identity instead of a sudden realization, he tried one small change at a time. That's what WPATH, the medical protocol recommended for people experiencing gender dysphoria, recommends. He cut his hair short, and that felt good. 
He wore loose-fitting clothing, and that felt good, too. It's hard to describe, I think, to somebody who hasn't had the experience of dysphoria, what euphoria is like. Other than that, it was the opposite of how I'd always felt. The idea was to continue taking steps until you settle into an identity that feels right. I am certain now that I'm transmasculine, but non-binary. My pronouns are he, his, him. I take hormones. I would like to get top surgery at some point. That feels right, but I also am not a man. I don't really know how to describe it. It's the identity that lets me be Tamlin without having to conform to someone's expectations. A common misconception that Tamlin said trans people get all the time is that they're obsessed with gender. Gender identity is really important to cisgender people. We have different bathrooms. We have different locker rooms. If you don't conform to somebody's expectation of what they expected, there's a really strong reaction. People will do this thing. Well, they'll look at my boobs and my beard and my boobs and my beard and my boobs and my beard. And it's like those little bird toys that if you put the water on the nose, they bob up and down. It's like that. I've gotten everything from somebody coming up and asking me straight up what my genitals look like (laughs) to uh, a hotel clerk who didn't want to give me the room that I'd rented because I didn't look the way I sounded on the phone to him. We have a narrative about each other kind of constantly going. And that narrative is based on our own projection of what gender is supposed to look like or how men behave, how men look, how women behave, how women look. So I found that everybody is really attached to gender identity, but transgender people are in general more willing to admit that we're attached because we have to in order to assert ourselves. We've just explored some of the questions Finn's story raised so far about the nature of gender. Now we'll return to his story as he begins his life as Finn. Coming out as transgender was a positive turning point for Finn's mental health. Heidi said she was struck by how natural the transition was for him. When we would go to a restaurant or even grocery shopping, and I'd say, I have to go to the bathroom. And in the beginning, it would always surprise me. He would walk into the men's room without a thought. And it was like, I guess I didn't realize it. Like, of course he would go in the men's room. But what I noticed is there wasn't like, is this okay? There wasn't hesitancy. He was clear that's where he belonged. After the past months filled with suicide attempts, Heidi's confidence was too shaken to have Finn come home quite yet. She'd locked up all the pills in her house, scissors, and anything else she could think of. But by now, she didn't want to take any chances. And so she had him transferred to Tanager Place, a long-term psychiatric facility for adolescents in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He spent a few months there stabilizing. While he wasn't suicidal anymore, he was still struggling with other mental health issues like fear of rape or of burning someone's house down. Heidi was touched by Finn's classmates' response to finding out he was transgender. All of the kids now know they're crying because they love Finn. Finn has been their, their beloved and hasn't been at school. They've missed Finn. And they've been through the fear of all the suicide attempts. The response was, I just get chills. The response was overwhelmingly open-hearted love. By October, Finn said he was ready to come home and go to school. He joined eighth grade at Maharishi School right after Halloween. Because Maharishi School is a small private school, Heidi wanted to make sure they were set up to support Finn. Research has shown that acceptance and support from family and community has a large effect on the well-being of transgender kids. 
A survey of 6,400 transgender and gender nonconforming respondents by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the Williams Institute found that the risk of attempting suicide was especially severe if the kids had suffered discrimination, such as not being accepted by family or school, physical or sexual violence, or being turned away by a doctor. Heidi was aware of the importance of Finn being in a supportive environment and said she was happy with the school's response. The school called in a national gender specialist to come and talk to the staff and faculty to educate them on the necessity of being sensitive to pronouns, educating on the difference between sexual identity and gender identity. This school was ready for zero tolerance of any bullying or any harassment, and they were ready to embrace Finn with open arms and with any accommodations needed. He really loved his teachers. He thrived that year. He had a couple of blips. He, you know, he slipped back into cutting a couple of times. But we thought that this plant was really taking root in the earth. Finn's eighth grade year culminated in him getting the Alex Grace Award. He was really proud of it, really proud of it. And then school ended. That's when things got difficult again. He didn't have the structure. And not being a boy his whole life, he didn't have the kind of old friendships with the, the boys in his class. He had newer, you know, he knew them, but he had known them as a girl. And now he's a boy. And the, and the way the boys hang out is a little different than girls. And when you get to be 13, 14, it's, it's a little different there. I remember he laid across the couch here on my lap and he, in June. He said, I'm so lonesome. That's part of being a kid, that emptiness, that lonesome, that lostness. And I just support him in that. But, I mean, now I wish that I, I would have stopped everything. I was really busy with work. I wish I would have stopped everything and done a road trip. I wish I would have found him a camp for transgender and, I don't know, found some way to pay for it. I just wish that I could have done differently. On June 19th, a few days later, there was more bad news. Right around when Finn turned 14, Heidi had taken him to see a pediatric endocrinologist who treated transgender teens. The doctor had put Finn on a puberty blocker, which he took as a monthly shot. The plan was to buy Finn some time until he was old enough to begin taking testosterone. Throughout this process, Heidi had begun doing a lot of research online in order to educate herself so she could better support Finn. She joined a Facebook group for parents of trans kids and started learning about things like binders, which allow trans boys to safely conceal their breasts. And she learned about how hormone therapies worked. My friends who would be, you know, talking, I'd be talking about it. I said, and I said, that, said this to Finn, I'm not doing anything till he's 18 until I began to get more informed, until I saw the severity of body dysphoria. If you're born into a body that has parts that don't fit with your identity, you have a vagina and breasts, and your truth is that you're a boy, then when you're in the locker room, it's in your face all the time. When you get your period, I mean, Finn would go to school and have his period. And fortunately, he had girl classmates who would help him dispose of his pad so that it wasn't in the boys' room. He had support, but it can be very upsetting to have the constant reminder that something's off about you, that you're born wrong, is how it feels to them. I didn't realize until I did how delaying till 18 was really um, unkind. This brings us back to one of the questions from the beginning of the episode. When's the right time to consider putting kids on hormones? And while timing might be different for every kid, 
Getting on puberty blockers and beginning hormone therapy can help transgender youth more easily pass as the gender they identify with. Finn was a couple of years away from considering going on testosterone, but puberty blockers could help delay him from developing more of a feminine body. The only problem was that the puberty blocker was expensive. Heidi had just started working full-time, and so she no longer qualified for Medicaid. Under her insurance plan, she was out of pocket going to have to pay $1,600 a month. They scraped up the money to pay for the first shot, and they applied for the medication's patient assistance program and for state aid through a program called Hawkeye. That day on June 19th, Heidi came home to another letter of denial from the state aid program. She was going to have to tell Finn they couldn't afford it. We had dinner. Jean made him, he wanted maple beans or something, I don't know. And I told him about it. And I said, you know, we're probably going to have to go to something else besides the puberty blocker, like like some kind of a birth control shot that stops your period. But we, we can't continue. We can't afford this. And he said, but it's, it's for my happiness. He said, can't you do a GoFundMe? And I said, no, we've already done it when you were going through a lot. Um, we, we've done a, a GoFundMe. We, we, you know, you could do one, but I, I can't. And I don't know how my peers who might be contributing feel about hormone therapy, replacement therapy in a teenager. I don't, I mean, they're open to you, but I don't know. And I said, and he was working at everybody's, the local organic grocery store. And I said, you know, you have customers, you could put out something, you know, you could do a fundraiser for yourself. And and he was just, he was angry and he was mad and he was scared. I said, I'm sorry, we'll call the doctor. We'll find out what we can do. And he, he got mad and he went up to his room. And that's the last time I saw him. Heidi was taking her husband to the airport early the next morning. He was going to France to visit their daughter who was studying abroad. My phone rings and I pick it up and it's my coworker. I had taken the day off. He said, Heidi, um, I have a police officer and the medical examiner here and they want to talk to you. So the medical examiner gets on the phone and he says, when are you going to be back? And I will not till midnight tonight. And he's like, oh, this is awkward. And I said, why? You know, what happened? He said, well, it's, I'd really rather tell you when you get back. And I said, no, you have to tell me. Is Finn alive? And he said, no. And I said, where did you find him? And he said, by the railroad tracks. We started that drive back. And the first thing I do is go straight up to his room. I wanted to see if he left a note. And I open the door, and it's dark because he kept it dark, and the air conditioner's going. I open the door, and on his bed, I see a, a, a sleeping kid. For a second, it was like, oh, they have the wrong person. It's not. My, my fin's right here. And I go up there, and I put my hand on, the, on his shoulder and turn him. And he had put a basketball inside a hoodie sweatshirt and put clothing or blankets to make it look like a body. So um, he didn't leave a note. His computer was open. Oddly, the page that it was open to was an Ellen DeGeneres interview with amazing kids who've been bullied. And by his bed was a, an article written by one of his classmates on the effects of bullying. Now, I don't know, in my experience, Finn wasn't bullied. That has not been the thing we've led with was this was a bullied kid and this is why he killed himself. But it's one thing that he must have felt on some level. 
It's now been more than two years since Finn died. Heidi said the grief she's felt has actually been more intense in the second year in many ways. I'm still in the learning to walk on the earth without Finn walking on the earth. After Finn died, she commemorated him as well as a baby she'd lost in childbirth. We planted a tree with Finn's ashes. We also put my baby Maddie's ashes in there too. And Finn's friends came around the tree on his birthday last week and put flowers. And one of the mothers took pictures. It's Finn's cat hung around with him. It's very special to me. Heidi is still trying to understand why Finn chose to end his life. She said she's not convinced his suicide was solely about being transgender, but she knows it was part of it. I think it's complicated. I think Finn had big feelings. I don't think he was bullied because of being transgender, because the whole year that he was there, nothing came out about that. I think it was just maybe too much pain. Being transgender in this world at this time is not an easy thing. And with the technical difficulties, for instance, with the medication and the money and the peer relationships, it was really challenging for him, really challenging. Now I wish that I would have called the doctor first. She probably would have put him straight on testosterone. She would have probably said, get him in, we'll start him on tea. I mean, when I called the doctor and told her she burst into tears, she said, oh, I wish we would have done things. We had other options. Tamlin didn't know Finn personally, but had seen him at a couple of LGBTQ meetings that Tamlin had helped organize. He'd heard about Finn's award and the acceptance speech he'd given. It was a really positive speech, but I knew from my own experiences of being a college student who's an activist that it's incredibly lonely. A few days later, Tamlin got a text from one of his friends who's also transgender. The text said, we've lost somebody in the community. And I don't know why I immediately thought, oh, God, Finn. Like, I, I couldn't tell you exactly why that happened. And it hit me pretty hard because I was that kid. Pretty much every transgender person I know was that kid. So it's easy to look at that and think that could have been me very easily several times. That experience propelled me to do more activism just to reach out to that portion of the community and also to sort of reach back to myself as a kid and give myself the things that I didn't have that I would have wanted. Looking at Finn's life, it's clear he had a lot going for him. He was a bright student and he had a lot of people who loved him. But unfortunately, coming out as transgender doesn't necessarily lower your risk of suicide. In some ways, you're more vulnerable once you're out, living openly as different in a world that caters to two genders. Teresa said she never used to think about it much, but now she notices the limiting ways we talk about gender everywhere she turns. It just drives me crazy when I hear teachers at my kids' school saying like, okay, boys and girls, or like, let's count how many boys are in this group and how many girls. The way that we think about gender in our culture is very limiting and as a result, some kids are hurt by that. For a kid who's non-binary and they're being forced to choose you're either a boy or a girl, that's very stressful. And secondly, if you are, if you're a child who is, you know, assigned male at birth and you're feeling like you might actually be female and you're being continually labeled a boy or told to line up with boys or told to only use the boys' bathroom, that 
is also very stressful. Um, and nobody is doing it to stress anyone out. It's just the way things are. Teresa said in her book, she wanted the main takeaway to be that we celebrate the diversity of ways that people naturally express their gender. When Teresa took Grace shopping for girls' clothes for the first time, she said there was nothing like watching her daughter have this experience. Up until then, Grace had fought getting dressed in the morning. She couldn't explain to her parents at the time why she didn't want to put on boys' clothes. This was completely different. Oh my god. Um, all of my emotions are in my throat right now. It was really... I, I don't even know what the words are. I was scared, and I felt like crying the whole time we were in the store, not out of any sort of, like, mourning, but just the, just the realness of her, really just seeing her and giving her the chance to be her. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't have better words for it. I will never forget that day. I'm Donna Cleveland, and you've been listening to Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. This show was edited by me with production help from Cody Olivas and scoring by Mira Oberdyke and Taylor Ross. The episode artwork is by Chosie Titus, and a big thank you goes out to Molly Bloom for being my advisor. Before I go, I have a big favor to ask of you. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe through the Apple Podcasts app and leave me a review. That will help other people who might enjoy the show find it as well. If you have a story you'd like to see featured in a future episode of Thread the Needle, please email me at podcast at theneedle.co. The next episode of Thread the Needle will be available Wednesday, December 4th. Stay tuned.